Thank you for joining me for this episode of Podcast. I'm Laura Axtell, one of the hosts of Podcast, and this episode is part one of a two-part conversation with Peter Wright on a range of topics related to education and the law. Mr. Wright of Wright's Law fame provides valuable information on implications for reading instruction and special education and some of the issues moving forward, especially relating to providing services during COVID. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, a foundational reading program based on the science of reading that can be delivered in person, virtually, and in a blended learning model with instructional software. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. We are fortunate to have a guest on this episode of Podcast that can speak to so many of the current issues surrounding education and the legal implications of some of those issues. Peter Wright is an attorney who specializes in special education law and in 1993 argued a case before the Supreme Court that resulted in a unanimous landmark decision. He and his wife, Pam, developed the Wright's Law Special Education Law and Advocacy website and have published a number of special education books for educators and parents. Mr. Wright, it is a real pleasure to welcome you to Podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it. I think it might be helpful to have you summarize your personal story and how you became so involved in special education law. So could you talk a little bit about your own educational experience? I was raised in Washington, D.C. and attended D.C. public schools from kindergarten through the 11th grade. And in my kindergarten year, the staff told my parents that they thought I was mentally retarded, emotionally disturbed, uh, and that something was wrong. And in the first grade, they said that there really was nothing they could do uh, about, about it. And they were setting the stage at that point to be able to uh, exclude me from school. Because in some states, uh, if a child did not have the the ability to learn, uh, the state law allowed for school districts to exclude a a child. And uh, that, that kind of stage was being set. My parents obtained a comprehensive private sector psychoeducational evaluation of me educational, neurological, psychological, uh, et cetera. And they found that I had strephosymbolia and an acute hyperkinetic uh, uh, disorder. The acute hyperkinetic disorder, basically using today's labels, ADD, ADHD. The phrase strephosymbolia came into existence July uh, 25, 1925, by Dr. Samuel T. Orton. Uh, it, it was also known as t- uh, Twisted Symbols. Uh, it, uh, he uh, did a presentation to the American Neurological Society about this concept. Now it is known as dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia. The evaluators told my parents that because of this strephosymbolia, I need to have comprehensive remediation that I was basically illiterate, couldn't read, write, spell, or do arithmetic that I needed intense remediation using an approach known as the Orton-Gillingham approach. Dr. Orton joined forces uh, with an educator by the name of Anna uh, Gillingham, and they created an approach to teach children with strephosymbolia how to read, write, spell, and do arithmetic. Uh, they, they said that children with this disorder need to be taught differently. 
and my parents found Diana Hanbury King. Diana King worked with me every day after school for two years, one-on-one, teaching me how to read, write, spell, and do arithmetic. Her goal was not to get me to age and grade level. Her goal was to get me two years above in all domains. I was given a comprehensive reevaluation when I was in the sixth grade, and in all domains, I scored at the eighth grade or higher. So what she did worked. I also went to a residential Orton-Dillingham camp uh, in between the two years she worked with me. So that was basically when I first became exposed to Orton-Gillingham because it was done, it was used on me. And I was one of the first kids in in the history of our educational system to have very, very intense Orton-Gillingham for for basically two years from someone who turned out to be one of the tops in the world. So I was blessed by having someone who who was just top of the line. And so my parents ended up uh, really just, uh, just, uh, financially uh, uh, strapping themselves uh, horribly, but uh, ended up getting me enrolled into uh, a school in New England, a Quaker boarding school, which uh, was very rigorous academically. And I went to Moses Brown School in Providence, Rhode Island for two years, had to repeat the 11th grade as a condition of of entry. I went to college, Randolph-Macon, Ashland, Virginia, and uh, fell in love with psychology and learning theory and uh, ended up working in the uh, juvenile court system, juvenile probation officer, then later went up the, the ladder um, and became a, a supervisory administrator. And we have a website. One of the articles on our website is a, a, something I wrote up about reading problems in juvenile delinquency. That was back uh, about 1974. And I did a presentation before the Orton Dyslexia Society and also the Association for Children and Adults with Learning Disabilities at their national conferences about the relationship between reading problems and juvenile delinquency. Looking for a way out uh, and, and being, uh, had a, I had a mentor, Robert Shepard, Assistant Attorney General of Virginia, very active in the field of LD, and he kept pushing me to, to apply to law school. So I did, and, and I got in. And so when I got out of law school, I immediately went into doing special ed law and juvenile delinquency law. The special ed statute was passed in 1975. I went into law school in in 75 and got out in 77. So I kind of hit the ground running because the final regs didn't come out until August of of 77. And I I began practicing law in um, April 78. So I began doing special ed law right from the get-go and uh, did workshops about this new law that came out and, and everything else. And so that's kind of the story. Your understanding of all kinds of instruction, um, but particularly reading instruction from both your personal and professional perspectives, really allows you to speak to what's happening in reading instruction generally, but also with schooling in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, could you start by discussing a topic that comes up pretty regularly about reading instruction? Leading literacy advocates have begun to address kind of the lack of science to support whole language as appropriate for reading instruction and intervention. And some have stated that continuing to promote whole language, especially in the early grades when children are learning those foundational skills, is educational malpractice. Is educational malpractice like that even a legal concept and could or should it be used in this context, when we're talking about publishers or educational companies that have an approach or materials that are not based on the science of reading. Educational malpractice should not be used as the theme of a case. There 
uh, the concept educational malpractice is one that right now will no, not go anywhere. There is a lot of case law out there developed over the years about there is no tort known as educational malpractice. Now we know what medical malpractice is. You have surgery and doctor leaves a sponge in, this, in your stomach. You know, that would could be malpractice. And in, in the area of malpractice, uh, malpractice means the person uh, dropped the ball on, on the rules of practice, the standard of care, violated the, the, the rules of the standard of care, uh, breached them, and because of that, the uh, individual suffered an injury, uh, et cetera. So the, the problem has been that there is no clear standard of care, duty of care uh, out there with regard to public education at all. And uh, a number of the courts, when they have had what was characterized as a, as a pure educational malpractice case, uh, have, have said there, there, there are no clear standards. Thus, you can't be guilty of, of uh, breaching a standard if there are no clear standards out there. And then others have also said that uh, it can open the floodgates to litigation against school districts if, if there was such a tort. Now, there is educational malpractice, of course. I mean, that concept is there, but not as a, a legal tort, as a way to get your foot in the courthouse door. And there is another route that uh, is being followed successfully. There is a case on our website. It's one of my favorite cases, Gerard uh, Draper, D-R-A-P-E-R, out of Atlanta, Georgia, and the 11th Circuit. And in 2007, there was a, a ruling by a, a U.S. District Court judge based upon an appeal from a, a Atlanta. The District Court judge wrote that Atlanta Public Schools failed to provide FAPE to Draper for the 2003 through the 2005 school years and found that since 1998, when the kid was in the third grade, they failed to provide the youngster with the key to his education by properly teaching him to read. They labeled him as being mentally retarded as early as the third grade and did not ever evaluate the kid ever again for five years, despite the law requiring reevaluation in three years. And yet the child had all the classic signs. And he, the judge wrote, although JD exhibited classic signs of dyslexia at a very early age, the ALJ found that Atlanta Public Schools was still incapable of making a proper diagnosis and only because of the insistence of the family that led to a proper diagnosis later on. And so the school had not provided what the judge referred to as a basic floor of opportunity as required by law. And that basically for three years, they didn't meet any of the requirements of IDEA. And that case is a, a landmark case, and it's really timely now with the issue of COVID because of the concept of compensatory ed. So I'll get to that in a minute. So basically what happened here is this was never characterized as educational malpractice, and yet it's classic educational malpractice. The kid was evaluated and found to be mentally retarded when he was not mentally retarded at all, and it was never taught how to read. And the court in that instance said that, the, and, the, and the youngster was, if I remember, was, was 20 years of age by the time it got up to the 
uh, because of the appellate process taking so long. By the time I got up to the to the district court, and a school even appealed it to the U.S. Court of Appeals and lost. And the district court judge took the ruling of the administrative law judge and extended it even further, and uh, ordered the Atlanta Public Schools to pay Troy Draper's tuition at a private school for four years beyond a graduation high, from high school or reaching his 21st birthday as compensatory ed because of their, quote, persistent failure to educate him. So that's a, a classic educational malpractice case. The key is not phrasing a case as educational malpractice. You don't put it on that way, but simply this was their responsibility to, to evaluate him and from the evaluation, uh, see what the needs are and uh, then address those needs and teach him how to do this or how to do that. In this instance here, teach him how to read. And uh, the school district did not. And so you've got comp ed for four years beyond. So that's going into now shifting over to the whole the issue, the question you had about whole language. From my perspective and whole language vis-a-vis Orton Gillingham, uh, I, I didn't. I don't have much use for the whole language approach or for, for reading recovery. I don't think a lawyer should try to go in or a parent should go in and try to argue educational malpractice. There's just too much case law out there that uh, has, has an issue with those two words. You, it can be educational malpractice, but you have to characterize it as something else. That's all. We'll be back in a moment for more of the conversation with Mr. Wright. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, a structured literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. Combining professional development with teacher-led instruction and data-driven software allows students to receive targeted reading instruction that leads to improved reading outcomes. Crystal, a K-3 instructional coach in Texas, shared her experience with Reading Horizons. We have found the program to be very helpful in providing students with explicit instruction and sequential flow of acquisition of phonetic skills. It has been really helpful for our teachers to have a step-by-step method of instruction. We've been surprised at how much even our teachers have learned about phonics and phonemic awareness just from the Reading Horizons method. Thanks, Crystal. For more information, visit readinghorizons.com. Now we'll return to our conversation with Peter Wright. As you've been talking, I've been thinking about what you mentioned regarding FAPE, which is free and appropriate public education. So is that the standard when you're arguing cases? Is one clean way to think about that is, did the school provide free and appropriate education to a child? Well, you see, that's, that's the legal standard, but what does that mean? And so I don't actually put my cases on that way. Uh, I, I will say you know, the school's obligation and responsibility is to provide the child with FAPE, free appropriate public education. But that means one thing to one person, something else to, somebody, to another person. So you have to make it in, and, and, and very clear descriptive terms that, that are easy to understand. I'm curious then to know, since part of the problem is that there is no definitive standard of care when it relates to education, after all the research, do you think that there will be at some point a standard of care when it comes to reading instruction? We have moved closer to it now than we ever have ever before. There's no question about that. Will there be, be eventually a standard of care? It, maybe. 10, 20 years from now, I, I, I've learned not to get optimistic about the immediate future, but uh, uh, definitely there, there has been a, a, a shifting. It's taken a long time, and the big problem has been so often in the 
uh, schools of education, the teaching colleges and universities, the educators, special educators that are coming out are really not, don't, don't know much about Orton-Gillingham uh, or structured literacy. Uh, and uh, they're given a hodgepodge. And so that's really where the problems lie. And many parents, decoding dyslexia has been uh, a very powerful force in terms of getting many state uh, legislative bodies to enact a statute, a law, defining what dyslexia is. Dyslexia, the word dyslexia, has been in the special ed statute since 1975. It's been in the law in the statute under the definition of, of a learning disability since 1975. And yet, so many times I've heard people say to me, well, my school district tells me dyslexia doesn't exist and it's not in the law. And when I hear that, it's just, I'm saying to myself, well, whoever told the parent that, or whoever is telling me that, ha has not actually read the law. Now, if you've ever attended one of my live programs, when we're looking at the statute, I actually go right to that statute and have the audience look at it and highlight it. And you'll see, you'll see the word dyslexia right there uh, in there. And so what's happened is, even though it's been in the federal statute in IDEA since 1975, parents have had difficulties with the State Department of Education telling the local school districts, you got to provide an appropriate education for kids with dyslexia. And the SEAs have been reluctant to, to really push them. And so in many states, now there is a clear statute defining what it is and setting up training programs to ensure that kids with dyslexia are taught appropriately and properly. And as you mentioned, that's primarily because of Decoding Dyslexia, which is a grassroots parent organization. That's right. That's right. They've done an incredible job in, in getting uh, public awareness uh, 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 on this. And what's uh, so often what is the turning point that I have found in, in many times when you have something like this is you have to find someone in the uh, General Assembly and the legislative body, uh, state representative, a state senator, who has a grandkid with this. And that grandkid uh, is the, the, the key to that representative, that legislator, to initiating a bill on this issue. And they're out there. Just to clarify then, what about educational neglect? Usually that term is applied to parents who fail to ensure that their children receive educational services. Could a district ever be taken to court for neglecting to adequately educate regular education or special education students? Well, you know, there are some, some recent cases out there uh, along that line. There was one case basically talked about the, the constitutional right to literacy almost. And uh, it, it had tremendous landmark implications. And uh, the case had been appealed up to the U.S. Court of Appeals. And uh, there was a, a two to one uh, ruling in favor of, of the parents and had this 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 constitutional right to literacy. And then the uh, state, was it Detroit, the, they appealed the Court of Appeals ruling to uh, en banc. In other words, they asked the entire full Court of Appeals to hear the case. They filed a petition for an en banc hearing. And uh, when the full court agrees to do that, then that basically stops the case dead. The decision uh, of the judges is, is vacated pending the full and bond hearing, and then the case settled suddenly. Bang! The case settled, and a settlement vacates the Court of Appeals ruling and the District Court ruling. So technically, we have no case law now with regard to the constitutional right to literacy, right to read, 
to be taught properly uh, because of that, that settlement. We do have this, this one other case out in, in California where there was a, uh, I think it was $53 million uh, being set aside. So we have a few cases out there, but they're, they're slow. And I have uh, myself, my, in my own practice, I have always shied away from class action cases because they take a long time to go through the system. There, there are many roadblocks and the youngster you know, can, can have their own kids by the time the ruling finally is issued. I mean, I've seen class action cases go on for 10, 20 years and I've always preferred the good, clean facts and, and take it hard and fast. Um, uh, one of the roles of, of, of a lawyer getting into one of these cases representing a kid and the parents is to really clean it up in terms of how you market, how you sell it. So what's your opinion then about the arguments that may come up again at some point that literacy is a fundamental right under the U.S. Constitution? Do you think that's plausible? Uh, no, not right now. I don't think so. There are a number of cases up there, out there that said it's not. So that kind of leads to this whole issue now with COVID-19 and the lack of equity and many students who haven't had access to technology and other resources. One of the major difficulties of schools has been and is going to be figuring out how to provide services that are required in an IEP to students with disabilities. There's now a lawsuit that involves parents suing a school district for online classes. What do you see on the horizon from a legal standpoint? Is this going to open a major can of worms? Yes, we are going to see incredible amount of convoluted, complicated, confusing case law. Uh, no question in my mind about it. We're going to see a whole new evolution uh, of, of, of law. What's going to happen is we're going to get some decisions. They're going to make a hard left-hand turn and go way off the edge of the cliff. And other decisions are going to make a hard right-hand turn and go off the other cliff in the opposite direction. The decisions are going to be in direct conflict with each other, in opposition to each other. And we're going to have an awful lot of law that's not going to make sense. You try to square it up and come up with a, a clear, universal, cohesive understanding as to what, what is the right, what's the vindic how do you vindicate that right, what's the remedy, and so forth. There's no question in my mind that's what's going to happen. We have a book called From Emotions to Advocacy, and in that we talk about how to organize the file and understand the test data and to write letters. I tell parents, you've got to get all the data. You've got to get your kid's entire file from everywhere. You've got to get all the test scores laid out. Understand where your child was in reading, writing, arithmetic skills, speech language, perhaps, depending upon what the issues are, whatever it might be. But understand where the kid is on those skills that are necessary to make it in the real world when the kid becomes an adult. The numbers, understand what the numbers mean. What do the standard scores mean? What do the, the uh, subtest scores mean? And then you gotta see where is the kid now? What's happened with this, this passage of time? What's happened with, with COVID? Uh, has the kid shown great gains and benefited incredibly? Or has the kid just basically flatlined? Or in the alternative, has the kid gone downhill and lost? a lot of the, the growth that the kid had before COVID kicked in. And I think we're going to see flatlining and loss in, 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 in many, many instances. And then the question is, well, then uh, who's responsible? Well, you know, we're seeing around the country incredible differences in the quality of services. Uh, we're seeing some school districts really stepping up to the plate, doing as much as they can do to provide quality services and others 
uh, afraid to move, afraid they're going to be sued, afraid if they provide services for this type of student, then they've got to provide uh, uh, equal quality services for other types of students, and that this differential quality of services is going to open them up to lawsuits, so they'll provide no services at all. In fact, if they don't provide any services to any kids in their school district, then they can't be accused of discriminating against the kids with special needs, okay? So we're seeing some, some, some kind of like frozen in place on uh, unsure as to how to act, others going forward. And we're seeing in the private sector with a lot of the private schools, both special ed and regular ed, we're seeing a lot of them taking pick up the ball and running with it because you know, they've got to stay, uh, to stay in existence. They've got to keep the kids there. And, um, and I've been very impressed with what I've been seeing in the private sector and how services have been provided. And I'm seeing an incredible disparity differences between the schools in the public sector. And so change the facts for discussion. Assume there was no COVID but assume that your child was receiving speech language three times a week, let's say uh, 45 minutes uh, a session. And then just before, uh, or let's say around Christmas time, the speech language therapist uh, went out on maternity leave and the school said, we can't afford to hire anyone else. So you're, we're going to modify your IEP. So there's going to be no speech language until next fall. Wait a minute now. <laughs> that, you can't do it that way. And, and the parents, of course, never agree to that. And uh, so if, in fact, they stop providing speech language, then a clear entitlement to compensatory education has kicked in for speech language uh, during that time it was not provided. And that's what's going to happen here now with COVID. Is the kid entitled to compensatory education because services have not been provided? Well, the, the case law of compensatory ed has been based in large part upon school clearly dropping the ball and didn't provide FAPE when they should have. And because of that failure to provide FAPE, then the kid is entitled to compensatory ed. And the compensatory ed does not mean an hour for an hour necessarily, because if a kid lost um, three sessions a week of speech language, by the time the case gets to resolution, let's say a year and a half later, that uh, a six-month loss of, of speech language is going to have greater uh, adverse impact. So the kid may need much more than three times a week for six months to make up for that lost time. And so the courts have taken the concept of, of compensatory ed and said clearly that does not mean an hour for an hour, but instead you've got to see what was the impact of it, what does a kid need now to make up for it. It can be, well, more than an hour for an hour. So the, the Draper case uh, uh, is, is a great compensatory ed case. Uh, many people don't realize this concept of comp compensatory ed, comp ed. It's not in the statute and it's not in the regulations. It's a pure creature of case law that has evolved over time when courts have tried to come up with remedies for services that were, were not provided. So now with COVID, if a school didn't provide speech language because of COVID, did they drop the ball or uh, what, how, how is it analyzed by a hearing officer, administrative law judge, or a U.S. district court judge as the case goes up on appeal? How is it analyzed? Do you have to find fault with the school district? Because maybe another school district on the other side of the river did provide uh, speech language online or maybe even had a speech language person go by the house uh, once a week and then an online session. Uh, another part of the week or whatever. Uh, so 
lots of different approaches and you're going to get into a comparison and a contrast one school district to another school district or one school district to the private school uh, in that same uh, jurisdiction in that same area or what was being done uh, in another part of the country and uh, one of the things i'm saying is that if you're going to go forward on a compensatory ed case you have to be very careful about not creating bad case law and closing the door to all the other kids with special needs in your jurisdiction because you took a case that didn't have clean, simple facts. Instead, you muddied the facts up and you alleged multiple theories and threw them all against the wall, hoping something would stick. And you come back and have bad case law that hurts many, many kids, not just your child. So we're going to end part one here and continue with more from Mr. Wright on the next episode. Thanks for listening.